Welcome to this podcast from the Vessel Collective Church here in the heart of Texas. Our mission is to be vessels of the living Christ, set apart for His purpose and His kingdom. We thank you for sharing in this message here today. You know, we had uh, this, when we were doing church at home this past year, when everything was on lockdown, we had this joke because we had several Sundays where we were recording where it was Gary and Jessica and Shay Shay, and we would, we would say, oh, it's Gary and the girls. And so Travion, it's now Travion, you're now uh, Trey and the girls because look at him with all those girls up there. So thank y'all for leading. Well, good morning and welcome to The Vessel. Thank y'all for being here so much this morning. I especially want to say thank you to the Monics and the Parkers for uh, that this morning. That was really special. And thank you for just your commitment as parents. I just want to, want to say as a fellow parent and father myself, um, I think that's really significant, you know, saying that we're committed to raising our child in the name of Jesus Christ. And as par- every parent in here can testify, that, does, that is not a magic sprinkle that now your child is going to be good and behave and not scream and not wander and not get in trouble and that, you know, you're not going to have to ground them or do all the things that parents do. It's not a magic pill, but it is a commitment. And so I love your heart as being uh, wonderful parents to do that. So thank y'all so much. And thank you both for how y'all have loved my children. And like Denise said, it takes a village. And so I know both of y'all in some capacity or another have served in our children's ministry where my own children have been blessed to know Jesus through. So thank y'all so much, right? Yeah, amen. So we are, um, we are in a series, and we're kind of back in a series that's called Dear Church. So if you look right there, Dear Church. Um, and, and so we started this before Easter, and it's going to be a series that we come back to four times in the year 2021. So this is our second visit into Dear Church. And all it is is we're looking at uh, the different epistles in the New Testament. So if you don't know, the majority of the New Testament is made up of letters. And there are letters that are written from someone or a group of someones to uh, different churches in, in the area. And, and each story, each, each letter has a different significance and different things. And so really our heart is to just look at these letters um, and to read and to go through and see not only what the Lord speaks to us as Christ followers, but also to us as the vessel. And so um, we are starting back, uh, starting this Sunday. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be in First Thessalonians and then Second Thessalonians. There's five chapters in First Thessalonians, the first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and then there's three chapters in the second letter to the church in Thessalonica. And so we're going to go over the next eight weeks through all of those. And I always like to give a roadmap so you know what we're doing and where we're going. And so we begin that today, and it's going to end on Memorial Day. And so before we jump into this, I want to give you a little context of letters because we we read. A lot of times we read scripture um, like it's an instruction booklet or like it's Ikea furniture that's telling us how to live, what to do, what not to do, an instruction manual for life. And if you have had any interaction with God's word, then you know that is not the case. You know that his word is powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces through bone and marrow to our very hearts. And it is more than just words on a page, but it's alive and it's active and it changes who we are. So when we engage with God's word, it's easy and tempting for us to engage with this in an informational type way. 
right? Do we have any college students in here? Anyone who's currently a college student? Thomas, thank you. Carrie Hampton, did you raise your hand? Are you in college? Wow, that's impressive. Not that you wouldn't be in college. I'm just, you know, I'm going to stop talking right now. So Thomas, how many years currently have you been doing school consecutively? Right, so how many years is that now? How old are you now? You minus five from, what are you, 20? 16 years. Okay, so for 16 years straight, Thomas has been uh, a student. Carrie Hampton, do we want to figure out how many years you've been a student? <laughs> so for 16 years, you've been, a, you've been a student, and we learn to read for information, right? You're taught that. You learn that in school, that you're trying to absorb information. You're trying to read what it has and trying to learn and absorb as much as you can. Now, I was a, before ministry, I was a sixth grade PE teacher, but I also taught, um, I also taught science, sixth grade science. And you don't retain all the things that you learn from sixth grade science. I would read the stuff and then I would go and teach it. And after I taught it, I would forget it so I can learn and teach the next thing. That's a confession of a former teacher. But the idea is that you, we read for information, but that's not how we're to read God's word, especially that's not how we're to read a letter. So we consider that these letters to the church, this dear church, this series that we're in, what does it mean to write a letter to someone? You don't sit down and read a letter from someone to you or to a group of people for information, right? Sometimes an email, but it's not the same thing. A lot of times you want to know the person's heart behind it, why they're writing, what the circumstances. And so as, I, as we talked through this last time, and I'm going to do this again, I brought different examples of letters, of what letters look like, common day. If you remember when I taught and when we went through Philippians, I read a love letter between Shay and I. And by between, I mean from me to her because I was in love back in 2005. And then I read a letter that we sent out to the, the people of the vessel. It was a letter about how God's provided and his goodness uh, for us as a church. And so I'm going to read another letter to you today. And this is it right here. And as you can see, Lindsay will put up there. It says, thank you, Jake. So what is this? A thank you letter. Exactly. It's a thank you letter. So a thank you letter does what? It thanks people for something. Right, for something they did or something they ought to do. It's a thank you letter. So I want to read this letter to you. It's pretty short. And I want you to think about the circumstances of which this letter was written. So I received this letter this past fall after we had come back, after being gone last summer. And it was a thank you letter about, uh, to me. And our, our children's ministry did it to different people in the church. And so I will open up and I will read you this long, well thought out, well intended thank you letter. So there it is. So it says, Dad, you are a great pastor, and I want to thank you for pushing through and never getting, giving up. Exclamation point Sloan. That is my 11-year-old daughter. Did somebody say aw? We're going to do that better. Love Sloan. I know, right? And I've gotten lots of thank you letters over the years, but does it get better than this? Right? Your 11-year-old, one sentence long to say thank you for being my dad and for being a pastor. And I have this sitting on my desk, and this means a lot to me. It means a lot to me. It's one sentence long, but it impacts my life. And during the time that we were as a church, coming back and trying to figure out what it meant to gather again, what the future was looking like for us after being at home, after a really, really difficult year, this thank you letter. And for my 11-year-old my to say, you are a great pastor. 
And I want to thank you for pushing through and never giving up. When we did a baby dedication and we talked about what it looks like to raise your kids in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am far from a perfect dad and I make lots of mistakes, but authenticity and to love Jesus is powerful and to see what a real relationship with Jesus looks like. And during this time, we were going through a hard time as a church. So I'm gonna ask you something before we get into scripture. So if you're, if you're part of the vessel, if you were to write a letter because I looked last week and we just had Easter and you look back in like social media or like looking at our YouTube. And man, to think a year ago we were in homes and we were in lockdown and not able to gather. That was really hard. So if you were going to write a letter to the vessel, what are things that you would say of this past year? What are things that you would say? Yeah, yeah, this is interaction. Yeah, sorry. I'm asking you, this isn't, this is like where you, this is class participation. Jana? Yeah, thank you for gathering again. Amen. Yeah. What else? Consistent, right? Man, consistency's huge. Yeah. Yeah, good job of being wise and making the right decisions on safety and how to honor our local leaders with COVID and all that sort of stuff, for sure. Yeah, what else? Yeah, right, for teaching our kids, for having them back there. And there are adults right now that aren't in the service. They're back there loving and serving and sharpening and pouring into kids. Amen. What else? Yeah, for Church at Home, we have people participating right now through Church at Home to have uh, Jenna Craig is interacting right now and, and connecting with people, and we're streaming this, and it takes more energy, more effort to go and to make sure that people that aren't able to gather to be able to have that at home. Exactly. It'd be a thank you note for the things that we've been through, for perseverance, for hard times, encouragement over decisions, and man, we live in a time that is so divisive, so divisive. And I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about within the church. There's so much division within the church and how powerful it is to say thank you, to encourage, to offer a word of support is significant and powerful. And in a lot of ways, that's what the letter to the church in Thessalonica is. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump through and we're really just gonna read through chapter one. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you um, for thank you notes, God, for little things that are words on a page with marker or crayon or ink, God, that, that have power, power to help us to persevere, to push on, to encourage us, God, to let us know that our labor is not in vain. God, that our, our, our efforts are not forgotten. And Jesus, that we're loved. It's, we forget that, Lord. We forget that we're loved. God, I thank you for words that can, that can change that. Jesus, I pray that as we open up this letter that was written thousands of years ago to this church in Thessalonica, God, that you would do the same to us. God, that you would speak powerfully to us. God, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us that we're loved. God, that you would remind us of where we've been. God, and you give us hope 
and excitement and perseverance for where you're taking us. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray these things in your name. Amen. So this morning is going to look a little bit different, is that I am really just going to read through um, this letter to the church in Thessalonica. If you ever want a Bible, I recommend this. It's, uh, it, it is a Bible that I have that has all the books of, uh, every book of the Bible broken up into a little um, journal of sorts. So it just has scripture. This is the back and has pages to write notes. And so it's really awesome. So if you want to know where to get this, come see me afterwards. And so I have my copy of Fresh Thessalonians. So I'm just going to read through. We're going to put the words on the screen. And we're just going to look through line by line. There's 10 verses in chapter 1, this letter to the church in Thessalonica. So beginning in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace and peace to you. So um, conveniently, when a letter is written in these letters, they put who it's from up front so you don't have to scroll the end to to know who wrote it. So this is Paul that's writing this letter, and he's writing it not just for himself, but on behalf of Sylvanus and Timothy. Uh, Sylvanus is Silas, and do we have any, uh, like, Ben's in here, Benjamin. This is like what his mother would call him, Sylvanus. And so don't name your child Sylvanus. No Sylvanus is in the room. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy, um, and they're writing to this church in Thessalonians. And this is, theologians and historians can tell us that this is the very first letter that Paul penned. So of all the books in the, in the New Testament, this is the very first letter that Paul wrote to any church. Um, and he wrote it while he was in Corinth. And so we can look back in the story of Acts through Acts chapter 16 and Acts chapter 17 to see the journey that Paul had been on. And I want to tell you kind of where he's been coming up to this point to writing this letter to this church in Thessalonica. And so Paul in Acts 16, as we read through the book of Philippians, Paul was in prison. So Paul went to Philippi. Uh, he and Silas, or Silvanus, uh, if you're his mother, um, were preaching the gospel and, and telling the truth about who Jesus Christ was. And people got angry and mad, and they scooped him up and they threw him into prison. And if you know more about that story, uh, they get in jail. Um, they start singing hymns. God sends an earthquake that breaks their chains, and, and they're, they're freed from prison. And so they're on this journey in Philippi, and because of their sharing the gospel, this is Paul's missionary journey. He's thrown into jail for sharing the gospel. So again, God frees him from prison through a great earthquake, and then after that, he travels to Thessalonica, to these people here, and he begins to evangelize and preach the gospel and tell people about the love and the salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, Scripture tells us in Acts 17, if I can flip there quickly, it says that he was there for three weeks. It tells us that, that, that Paul thought, taught for three Sabbaths while he was in Thessalonica and then uprose an angry mob. They were mad at him for preaching the gospel, for sharing the new, good news. And so an, an angry mob arose up and they ran him out of town. So he was there for three short weeks when he planted this church that he evangelizes people, told them about the kingdom of heaven and what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross. And so for three weeks he preached, an angry mob rose up, and in the, in the thick of night they, they escaped town, Paul and Silas. And so soon they traveled to Berea, and the angry mob found them. They were so angry at them, they left uh, Thessalonica, and they traveled to Berea and followed them there. And then finally he ends in Athens, and he, he evangelizes in Athens. He's still running from this mob. And 
In Athens, he has minimal success of sharing the gospel. It says that people scoffed at him and his message of who Jesus was. And in verse 23 of Acts 17, and this is just, it made me think about the day we live in. He's talking to them about, about all these false gods and these idols that they're worshiping. And so as, as Paul is there in Athens, he comes across an altar. Uh, in verse 23, it says, For I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. So you were ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And he tells them about the kingdom of heaven. And man, is that not so true? Is that sometimes we don't even know the God that it is that we're worshiping. The God of culture, the God of reputation, of success, that what it is. So he's in Athens and he leaves Athens. He has minimal success in Athens and he lands in Corinth. And scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when he arrives in Corinth, he says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. So think about the missionary work of Paul as he's writing this letter. He's in Philippi trying to share the truth about Jesus Christ, throw him into prison. Then he goes to Thessalonica, an angry mob arises and he flees in the dead of night. They follow him to Berea. He goes to Athens and has little success there. Man, talk about discouraging. Would you call that a successful missionary? Just that right there. Would you say, man, they're really doing the God's work. Look at how awesome and amazing, what a great job he's doing. No. I serve on an advocacy team for one of the families that's uh, missionaries here from the vessel. And I want you to know that ministry and going to be a missionary, if it's anything, it's discouraging. And so this is where Paul's been. This is the journey he's been on. And too often we evaluate success and we call it fruit based off how many people come, based off how easy it is, based off how fun and how great it is. But you can look at Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, and would we call this success? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. After this journey he's been on, he arrives in Corinth with great fear and trembling, and he's weak. And this is not the last time that Paul finds himself in prison. And it's in Corinth that he writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica. And this, just like this, is a letter of encouragement. It's a letter to encourage them to continue on in their faith. When Paul is later in prisons in Acts 23, Jesus visits him in his jail cell. He's in, he's in chains again for the gospel. And he says, just like you've spread the gospel in Jerusalem, I mean, this is a guy that's had mobs after him. This is a guy that's been trying to be stoned and they've drug him back into town. This has been his journey as a missionary. He says, now you're gonna go to Rome. And Jesus tells him, he says, take what? He says, take courage. So you wanna know what it takes for the kingdom of heaven? Like we as a church in the times that we live in and our faithfulness to the gospel, what it's going to take, it's gonna take courage because every one of us knows what it's like to be discouraged as a Christ follower. If you don't, it's probably because you're not following Jesus. And that's not mean, that's just the truth. The truly follow Jesus is difficult and hard. 
And so that's where Paul's writing it from. And that's why it's important to understand context, just like if someone reads this letter 2,000 years from now, to know that what we're going through and the time and the difficult circumstances that we're under. So here he is, and he says to take courage, and, and, and he's discouraged. He's in this place, and he writes to this church in Thessalonica. He continues in this. In verse 2, it says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like Paul begins every letter, he begins it with what? Thank you. It's a, it's a, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. It says, I give thanks to God for your work of faith, for your labor of love, for your steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. And, and a lot of times we see these things in Scripture, these ideas of faith, hope, and love. That's not new. This is the first time he's written it, but it's certainly not the last time Paul writes these words of encouragement. First Corinthians 13, you've read it or you've heard it if you've been to a wedding. Um, love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. At the end of this, at the end of that, it said, and these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. These are words that are not redundant. This isn't redundancy for redundancy's sake. These words aren't interchangeable. Scripture, every word of Scripture has power and has truth. And what we do is sometimes as, as human beings or especially as preachers, we use redundancy to either buy time, to get a point across, or to waste time. Does, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Do you hear me? Is everyone listening? Do you get my gist? But that is not Scripture. Scripture does not do that. Every word matters. And I want you to know, he begins, he says, we give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God, the Father of hope. And it's this idea of mentioning you in prayers. You know, my favorite meeting that I get to have every month is when I get to meet with our elders, when we have our elders meeting. And it is amazing. And so what we do is we are actually, we have an elders meeting today. And so we meet one Sunday a month and we have a business meeting where if we have to vote on anything or things that need to be discussed. And then we have another meeting on a Friday every month where we just get together and we pray. And it is my favorite time because we literally do this as elders of this church. As we get together and we mention you by name in prayer, we thank God for what he's doing for the work of faith that we see happening, for the labor of love, for the steadfastness of your hope. And it is, it is so real and so good. I want you to know, if you don't come, if you're not here, part of the vessel, that's what you want out of your elders. You want people that will go to war for you in prayer to thank God for who you are. So I'm gonna look at these three things really quickly. He says a work of faith, this word work in, uh, in the original language is ergon, and it truly means, like, it truly means Business, employment, or that which occupies. So when Paul says he thanks them for their work of faith, it's out of their faith gives them employment. It gives them a job. It gives them that which occupies their time. And so as a Christ follower, I want you to know your faith produces something. True faith in Jesus Christ produces something in your life. It gives you purpose. Our mission here is we are called to be vessels of the living Christ set apart for his purpose and his kingdom. 
And the truth of Scripture is, is that true faith in Jesus Christ produces something in you. It's not out of your works that you prove your faith. It's out of your faith that gives you a job. It gives you a purpose in your life. It gives you a thing to do. And so we can get that backwards sometimes. We think, oh, I gotta go to church. I better serve in Vessel Kids. I heard Denise up there. She said it would be good. And I'm gonna do it out of obligation. Or, you know, load and load out. Chairs don't set out themselves. I'm gonna get there early. I'm gonna do this out of obligation. But it's truly out of our faith that we get purpose in the things that we do. He also says it's a labor of love. And work and labor here, Work of faith, labor of love, those are different words. Work is a job or an employment or an occupation. Labor is translated literally as this. It's defined as intense labor with toil and trouble. So it's a caveat. It's not just working hard at something and laboring over at something. It's characterized by being associated with toil and trouble. So it's intense labor with toil and trouble. Think back about a wedding day. Stephen Godfrey went to a wedding this past weekend. Weddings, like you see the videos of the, the groom and he's standing up front and he's waiting. And the bride walks down. His eyes are filled with tears and she's gorgeous and they're so in love at that moment. That's easy, right? That's an easy moment to love that person that's walking down the aisle that's gonna commit their life to you. Right? And you stand before and you give, your, you give your vows. You say, in good times and in bad. In good times, it's easy to love someone. In bad times, it's not. And you never want to think about your marriage as a labor of toil and trouble. But anyone that's been married more than, I don't know, six months knows that it is. In sickness and in health, health is easy. Sickness, that's a labor of toil and trouble. Right? In riches, that's easy. And in, and, in, and in riches and in, don't you say that one? Riches and, and poor, and poor and riches, I don't know. But there are hard times and there are easier times. When Shay and I were engaged, right before we got married, that summer before we got married, I went to Brazil and I studied abroad in Brazil for three months. And so for Shay's birthday present, I bought her a ticket to come and visit me in Brazil. And so it was the very end of my trip. And we traveled around uh, for two or three weeks before we went back. And I was graduating college, and we were in love, and we were getting married. And so we took this little excursion to this, uh, this little town. I was in Salvador, Bahia. And so we went to this little town that has uh, this, these mountains, Chapada de Giamanchina. And we went hiking, and we went in these waterfalls. It was so cool. And so we had this great time. It's just she and I. And we were staying in these little posadas and these little bed and breakfast. And so we, we got in this room uh, that, that we rented, and it was literally the size of a bed. So, like, there was a, there was a, a twin, no, no, a full-size bed in it, and there was barely enough room to walk around the bed. It was tiny. And in the corner of the room, there was a shower that, if you've ever done mission work, you've been in one of these, the shower head's over you, and it's, it's uh, like, don't touch it. It will shock you because it's an electric shower head. And then the toilet is underneath you and the sink is right there. So you can literally sit on the toilet, wash your hands, and take a shower all at the same time. It's like a two by two foot square little thing. And you're in there and there's a curtain, like, and not to say curtain, it was like an old sheet that was covering the thing. And we walked in, we're like, all right, we're about to get cozy, right? This is gonna be very intimate. We're engaged. We've never been in this circumstance. That's this tiny place. So we get there, we check in our room, and we go out that night, and we go, and we find this little guy on the street that's selling chicken, and we eat chicken on the street. And let me tell you, 
a bad idea is in a little town in the middle of Brazil to eat street chicken. So we eat this street chicken and we get back to our place and it hits me 100 miles an hour. I've never been so sick in my life. And here we are and we're in love and we're engaged and it's coming out of both ends in this two by two foot room. There's a point where Shay's laying in bed all night. I'm sick. I, like as I'm sitting on the toilet, I can reach out beyond the sheet and touch her foot. That's how close we are. And so you talk about a labor of toil and trouble and a labor of love and toil and trouble. That's what it's like. And she's like, are you dying? Like not joking. She's like, do we need to take you to the ER? I'm like, babe, there's no ER here. And I'm so sick. And by the next day, I'm just, I'm just toast. And so that's how you know you truly love one another. It's easy to laugh about that, but love is an action. And you look at love in scripture, agape love, which is what is mentioned here. And true love has action tied to it. For God so loved the world that what? He gave. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. That love truly has labor and action attached. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a tear in your eye as your beautiful bride walks down the aisle. That it's, it's, it's work. And we as Christ followers, Jesus says, don't love just... Don't love through words and speech, but in actions and in truth. So what Paul is saying here, he says, I thank my God for your labor of love, for your love that has action, for your love that toils through trouble and hardship, that labors on for the kingdom. This is not just a warm fuzzy. This is words like in this right here. Thank you for pushing through. And so if we want to know what it truly looks like as a church to love, it's work. And it comes with toil and trouble. And then he says, and steadfastness of hope. It can be translated as steadfastness, endurance, patient enduring, to persevere, to push through because of your hope. I met with a friend this week um, that I know, and his wife was recently diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer. They have four kids the age 10 and under. And she is receiving treatment right now. And the treatment that she receives is known as the red devil. It's the most maximum amount of poison they can put in your body that's legally allowed. And I'm meeting with him and, and we're catching up. And man, she's fighting for her life. And here he is at home with these kids trying to love his wife. And you want to know what endurance and steadfastness, and what is it that keeps you going? So I asked him, I said, how are you doing? Like with the kids and with all that, he's like, what choice do I have? He's like, they can't see me break down. I can't lose it. I just am hoping for God to heal her, for something miraculous, for this to work. I mean, that's what endurance and steadfastness of hope looks like. There's nothing about that that's right or that's okay or that's reasonable. He's downstairs cooking dinner for his children and he goes upstairs to check his wife's pulse to make sure she's still going. Man, and when we look at our lives in Jesus Christ, and we want easy, we want comfort, we want enjoyment, we want all these things and that's not bad. But the truth is, 
is that what we're called to do is our hope in Jesus to produce steadfastness in our lives. In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. So I want to encourage you. I want us to look at, at what Paul's writing here. Say your, your, your faith has produced work and purpose in you. Your love has action that's alive and toil and labors for those who don't know Jesus and for one another. And your steadfastness is birthed by your hope. We better speed this letter up. Verse four, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not, with, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with, cool, with full conviction. And that is what I pray for myself and I pray for us as a church, that the words that we speak, that the songs that we sing, that the prayers that we pray over are not just empty words, that they're full of the Holy Spirit, that they're full of power, with full conviction. Verse 6. It says, you know that the kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, may, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. And so he, he, he tells them this idea is that, that they became imitators Verse six, and you became imitators of us and the Lord. Remember, these are baby believers. He was there three weeks, and he's gotten word of their faith, of their love, and of their hope that's spreading like wildfire. He's not saying, hey, great plan on great marketing scheme. You really you had the Easter egg thing, and you got all the people there. I heard you had a high attendance. Like, way to go. You've got a great marketing scheme to grow your church. That is not what he's saying. But he says that you became imitators of us and imitators of the Lord. And these are baby Christians. So consider, what are you imitating in your life? What are you imitating? Because I promise you are imitating something. You are imitating someone. When our firstborn, uh, Sloan, our sweet write me a thank you note, Sloan was born. And she was a baby. She was in her car seat. And she was just beginning to talk. One time, Shay and I were driving our car. We didn't have any other kids, and she had like a cup of goldfish in her hands. And I slammed on the brake, and her goldfish uh, went flying. And perfectly, under her breath, she said a four-letter word that no two-year-old should say. And we were like, what? And she said it perfectly in the perfect context, right in her voice. And we thought, we are using bad language around our two-year-old daughter. She's an imitator. Your children imitate you, right? People imitate you, and it happens and you see this, and you see this happen. There's a, um, there's a uh, philosophical position that's called anti-mimesis, uh, which is basically it communicates that life imitates art. It, is, it was developed by Oscar Wilde. And so this idea that life imitates art. And if you look around in our culture and you look around the world, it's that it's shaping who we are as society and what we're following and what we're going after. And, and just realizing and understanding that gives us understanding. And so it's like 90s fashion is coming back. That's a thing, evidently, like the middle part and the, what is those things called, scrunchies? And so Shay went shopping with a friend this week, and she 
they got this outfit, and she went to this thing yesterday. She's like, I kind of look like I'm back in the 90s. I'm like, you kind of do. Like, this is weird. And things have a way of coming back around. But, you know, we, this idea of life imitating art is really true. So if you don't know what you're imitating in your life, the question that you ask yourself is, what direction am I going in? If you just stop, you say, what direction am I moving? Because, because to truly imitate means to follow. And Paul's saying, you, you, you imitated us, you followed us, and you're following the Lord. Because these people, literally, you're going to see here, they turned away from idols and began following Jesus Christ. And that is what true, that's what true repentance in, in Christ looks like. It's to turn away from that's what with which we're chasing and to go in the other direction and to go after Jesus. It says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you then became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Acacia. So he says, not only did you imitate us, but now you have become an example. And these two things go together. As if you look back and if you are following Jesus Christ, I promise you someone is following you. I don't care if it's Lane Parker or your girls, Evelyn and Adele. I don't care who it is, but someone is following you. Someone is watching you. And your actions are louder than your words. And if you're following Jesus Christ, there's someone that is following after you. And that's what it truly means to be a disciple maker to go after Jesus Christ, to be in relationship with others, to move towards Christ together. And it's Paul the same. And you became imitators of us so that you can become an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. And these two things are tied. And it's this idea of our children that are, what are we modeling for them? The next generation, as we talked about, what is it that we're modeling for other people? Because it's easy to get caught up chasing the world, to imitate the world. Verse 8 says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Acacia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Paul's saying that their faith, their love, their hope is being reported beyond the walls of just these, this one little village that is spreading like wildfire. And if we want to be true Christ followers, that's what it looks like. Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception. I skipped a page. The kind of reception that we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. So as we close, I'm going to ask Miss Shelby Parker to come back up. Will you play a little bit? I'm going to lead us through a time of prayer. So Shelby, the wonderful and talented Shelby Parker, that's right, is going to play for us. And what I want you to do is I want you to consider those questions. What are you imitating in your life? What are you following? What direction are you going? And I don't know if that's confidently after Jesus. I don't know if you've gotten distracted by the world or by the circumstances of what's around us or by art itself. But I want you to pause if you're not sure and take a look. What direction am I going? Is it towards Jesus or is it towards the world? And then I want you to think of what am I modeling 
who is watching me? As I live my life, who is watching me? Because you, this happens not through speech and not through words, but in action and in truth. Is that we live in authentic faith in my household. And I am not the perfect parent. But we genuinely and authentically follow Jesus Christ. And I see it in my children. Yes, we say four-letter words sometimes. And we apologize for it. We ask for forgiveness. We pray when things are hard. And that's modeled for us. And if you're here and you don't have someone to chase after, and pray for that. So if you would, just bow your head right now. I'm going to lead us through some prayer. Thank you for joining us this morning for our service. We are publishing content throughout the week for Church at Home through our social media and website. For more information, visit www.vessel.church.